0: Well, thank you so much for staying. I mean, after you've been given a coffee and a break and you've done the singing and the worship, and the, I'd be tempted to leave myself. So thank you so much for staying. I do appreciate it. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chaplain Richard Quadrio. Um, it's, uh, in the Navy, we uh, always start a brief, that's what we call a talk, with uh, an explanation of a few things, how long it's going to be. I've been given a time limit, 22.5 minutes or something, so... We'll do my best to stick to that. It's unclassified. We've got to tell you our, whether it's classified or not. The scope is we're going to look at a parable. And uh, in the Navy, when we give a brief, we always have questions at the end. Um, I always did that in church as well. So I do have a little slot at the end and time for questions. I'll be really disappointed if we don't get any questions. If we didn't get any this morning. They were hopeless. And uh, and yet, as soon as I talked to people afterwards, they made points and they, we talked about things so I said for to sake why didn't you that was the point of the, the question time so you're on notice okay please uh engage at the end let me pray and then we'll begin father we thank you for your word and we thank you that we can meet together as your people and be challenged by your word pour out your spirit upon us now we ask this in Jesus name amen I have an unusual job and I have unusual methods of doing pastoral visitation. Uh, last year I was the chaplain on a ship called HMAS Adelaide and we were in a task group off the west, of the west coast of Western Australia and then up in Asia later in the year and I got to do pastoral visitation across all the other ships uh, by helicopter. Um, the, uh, 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 the Navy won't send a chaplain around on a helicopter to visit people. That's a bit of ridiculous expense. But when there's an admiral comes and visits the ships, then there's often a spare seat at the back. And so the admiral came and he visited everybody and I was able to tag along. He was—he would go up and talk to the captain, I would go down and talk to the guys and girls down the bottom of the ship and we'd, I'd work my way up, he'd work his way down and we'd meet in the middle and then we'd leave. But this particular day when they took that photograph, we're about to get on the aeroplane, the uh, the uh, helicopter, the MH90, and one of the guys, one of the uh, aviation guys, said to me, "Pater, have you done a vertrep before?" And uh, I didn't know what a vertrep was, so I didn't sort of know quite how to answer. Because if I answered "yet no," that would sound very, you know, uncool. Um, if I answered "yes," that wouldn't be telling the truth. So I didn't really answer at all. And then he said to me, "Oh, you'll be all right." So I thought, okay, I'll be right. I found out what a vertrip was. Um, it's a complicated job landing a helicopter on a ship at sea because this, the ship's moving this way and this way. And some of our older ships, this new helicopter is not rated to land on. So they don't land. So the Admiral and I and the Admiral's staff had to get off by vertrip which means we were winched down, um, which sounds reasonably straightforward, until you imagine winching on a sling, you know, like they pick people up from the ocean, just a little sort of yellow sling like that, and then the helicopter's hovering, but not exactly still, because it's a 35-knot wind and it's sort of hovering like this, and the ship's in a 5 metre swell and it's pitching this way and rolling, and it was quite an interesting uh, operation. But let me say that I think that's easier than trying to understand the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, in one sense, really straightforward, but in another sense, really complicated. Now, does anybody know who this is? Let me again say, no one knew this morning. Anybody? Pardon? Yeah, if you're here this morning, you can't answer. I'll give you a clue. Russian novelist. Sorry? Close. Tolstoy, who wrote War and Peace and uh, Anna Karina. Tolstoy, late in his life, (sighs) tried very hard to live the Sermon on the Mount, literally. And basically, it was a disaster. Um, The Sermon on the Mount, in the one sense, is straightforward. It is the picture of the good life. It's the picture of what it's like to live a kingdom life. On On the other hand, it's completely impossible to live. It's way beyond us. And if anybody in Tolstoy did try to live the Sermon on the Mount to the letter, it's, it's simply not possible. So the Sermon on the Mount does two things. It gives us a picture of the good life, but it also drives us back to forgiveness and grace because we can't reach it. We can't get there. We always fall short. Nevertheless, it does give us a picture. It gives us a challenge. It shows us the way. So let's quickly just look at the text. Oops. Sorry, go back there. Um, Do not judge, starting in verse 1, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With a measure you use, it will be a measure to you. Don't judge. Well, clearly this doesn't just mean don't judge and don't make any judgments because we all make judgments all the time that are quite sound and quite good. You're in the process of thinking about who's going to be the next minister for Epping Prezis and the selection committee will be doing a lot of judging. That's what they have to do. They have to judge based on what they know and understand and research and hear and see. They have to make a judgment call under God. Yes, they'll be praying. Yes, they'll be seeking God's guidance. Yes, they'll be doing all that. But the name won't drop from the clouds. They'll have to make a judgment and we'd make those judgments all the time. we judge whether a tradesman is trustworthy or not. we judge how to deal with a neighbor. we make those judgments all the time. So I don't think Jesus is saying don't ever make judgments because you can't live. What he's saying is, in, in our way of explaining it, don't be judgmental. Don't be a fault finder. Don't go looking all the time for faults. Don't be obsessed about people's problems. Don't have a critical spirit. The measure that you are measured, you measure others with, you'll be measured by. So be careful the way you measure. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Anybody know what this sort of way of explaining that Jesus uses, this sort of form of explanation? It's called a... it's called... It's a parable, yes, but it's sort of hyperbole. That's exactly, thank you, Sue. Sue. taught me a lot about the Bible years ago and she's still streets ahead of me. It's hyperbole. It's it's over the top. It's a ridiculous exaggeration. It's you want to get somebody here, so you, you sort of point it out there in the hope that they'll get halfway. We don't all have big poles in our eyes. We're not all looking at specks, but he's, Jesus is making the point, how can you... Criticise others when there's so much wrong with us. Verse 5 says, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll clearly see to remove the speck in your brother's eye. When our friend tonight was doing the children's talk, sorry, what was his name again? What's your name again? Sam, when Sam's doing the children's talk, and he starts munching on the things, some eight-year-old says, You hypocrite! It's beautiful! It's beautiful! You couldn't have staged that, but did you line her up to say that? Do you know, it was beautiful. And, and eight, how old was that girl that said that? Then I was, but she wasn't very old, right? But the point is, even a child can, knows what a hypocrite is. Even a child can spot somebody who's being hypocritical. And Jesus didn't like hypocrites because we don't like hypocrites. No one likes hypocrites. No one likes somebody that preaches one thing and does something else. That inconsistency annoys us all. The parable is not really difficult. Verse 6 is difficult. We'll get to that in a minute. Let me just say generally two things about the parable. Firstly, it's a parable that leads us to have empowerment. Let me explain. I deal as a chaplain with people regularly who have dramas in their lives. And I talk to them about their issues. And most of them are unbelievers or doubters or mystics or animists or materialists, occasionally another religion, and recently a witch. You might say a witch. Well, let me tell you a story. I was running a a small group on a ship. To call it a Bible study group would sound way too boring. So we called it a spiritual resilience group. Navy is very into resilience. So spiritual resilience group. And um, we went around the circle this first week of the spirit. I encourage anybody to come who wanted to be made more resilient spiritually. Um, And we explained where we were and what we came from, what spiritual background we had. And one of the girls said, oh, I'm a witch. I went, right, (laughs) that's a new experience. (laughs) Let's get on with that. Anyway, people from all sorts of backgrounds come to me and they tell me their problems and they seek my counsel. And generally... What they say is is all consistent with one thing. They feel fairly powerless because somebody, something or some outside group is annoying them or stopping their progress or getting in the road, whether it's their wife or their missus or their husband or their husband or their kids or their parents or their friends or the Navy or the poster or their boss or the government or it doesn't matter who it is, the list is very long, it's always somebody external. And after listening for, you know, a certain degree of time, I often stop and say, well, can we fix that? Is there anything we can do about, certainly sure, can't fix the Navy, can we fix these things? And what I try to do is encourage them to realise what bits in their own life they can control and how they can go about fixing them which it seems to me is exactly what Jesus is doing with the log and the speck. He's saying, you can't fix the speck in some of your brother's eye. You can't even see it because you've got a log in your eye and eye. So worry about your log. And when we focus on the other person's problem or the other organization's problem, we feel powerless, like this little kid. We don't have any power. And I often ask people after I've listened to them for a little while, I said, do you feel Do you feel powerless? Exactly. (laughs) As we focus on others, we will feel powerless. As we focus on the log, we will find our power. Steve Covey wrote that very famous book, and I think it's a very helpful book, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he drew these two circles. I don't know if you can see them. They're pretty small. The the small one on your right is called our circle of influence. That is the stuff we can actually control. Mostly it has to do with us. And the outer circle is our sphere of concern. That's the stuff we'd like to control, but we don't. If you're married, that's your wife. Unless it's your husband, if you're already a wife. It's the stuff we'd like to control, but we can't. And what Covey made the point was, when we concentrate on the bits in our lives we have control over, mostly to do with us, then our sphere of influence tends to grow. And if we concentrate on the bits we don't control, then our sphere of influence tends to shrink. And I think that is basically what Jesus is saying when he says, concentrate on the log in your own eye before you worry about the speck in your brothers. Because when you concentrate on the speck, we feel defeated and annoyed and bitter and ripped off and bad. And when we look at the log, we've got some chance of going forward. For many years, Wendy and I taught um, the Alpha Marriage course at MacChap. And uh, there's this great story in the marriage course about a couple who'd been married for 15 or so years and they did the alpha marriage course in the UK because they were just about divorced and they thought they'd do this as a last hope. And they learnt one thing in this course that changed their lives. They'd learnt that the guy had spent most of his last, at least 10 years of his marriage, focusing on his wife's faults and his own needs... And he was miserable. And she at the same time was concentrating on his faults and her needs. And they were like, you know, two ticks on a dog and no dog. Do you know, there was, nothing, there was nothing there. So in the Alpha Marriage Course, they learnt that if he concentrated on her needs, sorry, yeah, her needs and his faults, and she concentrated on her faults and his needs, all of a sudden they saved a the marriage. Now, what's another name in marriage, another word in marriage, for when we concentrate on our marriage partner's needs and we actually work on our faults? What's another word for that? It's only a short word, four letters. Starts with L. Pardon? Love. Love. That's what love is, surely. It's when we actually take the needs of somebody else over our own needs. We think about their needs and we concentrate on maybe fixing ourselves. So the parable of the speck and the log can lead to empowerment, I think. And it also is, I believe, a good model for engagement. I was a president minister for 25 years and I've been a chaplain in the Navy now for the last six. Um, The biggest difference between the two jobs is that as a a church minister, I spent 95% of my time with believers and 5% maybe with unbelievers, whereas now I spend... 98, 99% of my time with unbelievers and only a fraction of my time with believers. Um, and and because of that, I have an unusual, eclectic mix of Facebook friends who on Facebook say often very different things about the same issues. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, and if, if you look at not every one of my church friends, but but... but Generally, over the last 12, 18 months, I often hear from my church friends that the world is getting worse and worse. We need the Christians to take a stand. We need to take a stand against the immorality of our age. And for many, that stand was the issue of same-sex marriage. The Sydney Anglican Diocese spent $2 million advertising for that campaign. My Navy friends have a different view of the world, and I want to sum it up in just One statement that one guy said to me once, he was a guy I did a course with over six months, my initial training, and I got to know him very well, young guy in his 20s, most of the people were in their 20s. He said to me one day, he said, Padre, we've decided you're not like a normal minister of religion. I said, oh, Ben, how's that? He said, we're fairly sure you're not a pedophile. Now, his assumption was, as a young 20-year-old, that all ministers of religions are pedophiles. How did he get that assumption? Did he make it up? No, we gave him enough rope to hang us with that, didn't we? <laughs> That's the reason he's got that view. It's not, it's not the media's fault. We can't blame the media. So it seems to me that Jesus' parable, often we in the church think, we think, well, Jesus, you've got it wrong. The world has the log in its eye, and we might have a speck, but the log's much worse, and it's our job as Christians to speak out against that log, log, to be politically active, to post things online, to say a lot about the plank in society's eyes. The Navy, they tend to think, well, my Navy friends, they tend to agree with Jesus. You Christians are worrying about our speck, but you've actually got a bit of a log in your own eye. In fact, I think many people in society think that We Christians have lost our moral authority. And maybe we have. (laughs) Maybe not every one of us, but maybe collectively we have. And maybe we ought to be a little bit more humble about it. As a chaplain, I work in the Navy really on the principle of Jesus' principle of when Jesus looked out on the, the lost people of his day, he didn't look out upon them with judgment. Who was the only people that Jesus looked generally with with an attitude of judgment? Pardon? Yeah, the the in-house people. Sorry, us. (laughs) He looked, he said terrible things about the the religious leaders of his day, called them broods of vipers, horrible things, harsh things, because they deserved it. When he looked upon the crowds, the lost, he looked upon them like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that's, My job, in a sense, in the Navy is to act with that sort of Jesus' compassion. When a young sailor on the bridge of a ship said to me one night, Sir, I don't believe in God. It's just completely out of the blue. We're sitting up there talking about the sea or something, and then he turned to me and he said, Sir, I don't believe in God. I went, oh, James, why? And he said, because science has answered all the questions. I mean... (laughs) Just make, and it make a scientist weep, that statement. <laughs> Science is fantastic, but it hasn't answered all the questions. Well, when a young chef tattoos from, you know, right over his body, really hardly a space where he hasn't got a tattoo, said to me one day, completely out of the blue, and again, I was shocked. He said, Do you know, Padre, I went to a Christian school. I went, really? He said, yeah, they used to beat me for not learning Bible verses off by heart. The challenge for us all, I think, living in Australia today, is: Are we going to preach and condemn and criticise and rebuke, or are we going to listen and love, and talk and seek to understand, and attempt to present Jesus? I must confess, in my own life, to having terrible logs. If, if, if um, you know, if, if, if up on the screen now behind me came. A, a random list of the thoughts that are in my head in the last month, you would have decided it wasn't worth coming back from coffee. You'd be very disappointed. We all fall short. And verse, oh, verse 6, which I left, doesn't want to go to verse 6. Here we got it now. Verse 6 is a difficult verse. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I don't think anybody really is sure what those verses mean. I've looked up all sorts of... There's all sorts of theories as to what it means. Strangely, most of the theories don't relate it to the subject of judgmentalism, which it must have something to do with that, surely. In Jesus' day, pigs and dogs were not treasured animals. Now people sleep with their dogs on their beds. In fact, people tell me they sleep with their dogs in their beds. Oh, oh. I like dogs, but dogs are for dogs. In Jesus' day, dogs were just wild, dirty animals, like they are in many parts of the world still. Pigs and dogs, not the nicest animals that Jesus is thinking of. I don't know exactly what this verse is saying, but I think it's saying, is it saying? There's no point preaching judgment to dogs and pigs. There's no point criticising dogs and pigs for being smelly and dirty and wild because they won't listen to that maybe they need to learn to not be dogs and pigs we need to love them when I was 19 years of age a good friend brought me along to a church that looked like this some of you may recognise it that friend was very non-judgmental non-judgmental towards me I came to this church as an unbeliever I drank at the time quite heavily, I smoked, I swore, I blasphemed, I was a racist, I gambled. I was a child of the 70s, the sexual revolution. I was telling people this morning, it's embarrassing to say this, but most of you won't remember, but many, many years ago in this church, the the minister, Peter Bowes, invited a woman minister called Margaret Yee to preach. Margaret was uh, one of the first ordained Presbyterian ministers, long story, but anyway, he invited her to preach and it was very controversial then because of the issue of women preaching. I just, being this stupid pagan racist, I don't know what I thought it was because she was Chinese. I thought they were upset that she was Chinese. It had nothing to do with she was Chinese. It was this whole, whole theological issue that I was unaware of. But this is the sort of person that turned up to this church in 1979, and I was treated with kindness and love. I, no judgment. Peter Bose, the minister then, had taught me high school scripture and I don't remember much of what he taught us at school, except I think he liked us and left that impression with us. And when he shook my hand at the door and smiled and welcomed me, he seemed to remember me. And what did I discover in this church? I discovered the God of the Bible, who loved me in spite of my sin, who died on the cross to pay the punishment for my sin, who called me to repent, yes, but was patient with my stumbling and gave me the time to be sanctified, and it's not finished yet. I'm very grateful that the people I met at this church weren't concerned about the speck in my eye. They love me. You see, the speck and log parable is a picture of the good life. It is. It's impossible. We can never get it perfectly right. We all fall short, and that'll drive us back to grace. We all like to concentrate on the other person rather than ourselves. I'm sure it's just because of sin. It, we just default that way. We no, I can teach this to sailors and then five minutes later do the exact opposite in my own life. There's something about sin that still remains in us. But the challenge is there. It brings us blessing in terms of empowerment and engagement. We do have a couple of minutes for questions. Um, that's what churches like on a warship um, off the Torres Strait. It's a bit different to here. Um, they ask questions, so... I expect that someone will have a comment, a question, a thought, an interjection, an objection, a affirmation, a contradiction. This is your big chance. Yeah, it's interesting you, you make that point. And I think there are some that would say that this is mostly about brother. But I, I personally don't think it's restricted to brother. Maybe it's especially with our Christian brethren. But... Um, it's hard. Jesus was sinless, so it was easier for him, right? But he treated the unbelievers of his day with kindness and compassion and graciousness. When the, the normal religious wisdom of the day was to shun them. Right? So you're right, it must start in the, amongst ourselves, brothers and sisters, but I don't think it should stop there. I think it then goes out. You're right. It must start in, inwardly. The, the church should be an embracing, non-judgmental community. Um, but then it also, I think, should have that face of the world. As we then present Jesus. I'm not saying we should stop presenting Jesus. Um, but I think we need to do so. And I think that, look, I think we, we're living through a bad patch at the moment. I think it's hard to be a Christian in, in society. And it's going to get harder for the next 20 or 30 or whenever until start, keep praying for revival because that's what we need. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's easier to be a Christian if we're non judgmental and we do love people, I think. And I think that's what Jesus wanted. So. But good point. Final questions, comments, thoughts, queries? You've done much better than the morning service, so well done. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that we would have the courage to put it into place, to put it into place in our lives. Help us, Lord, to address some of those issues that we have been ignoring while we've been concentrating on the concerns of somebody else. Give us the courage to face the truth in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.